Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. More than anywhere else in the world, Asia, especially Southeast Asia, is experiencing an infrastructure boom. Although it is driven by both internal and external factors, this boom has accelerated noticeably as a result of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which seeks to extend ports, railways and other connections throughout and across Southeast Asia. But what is the cost of this aggressive infrastructure development? What do we know about the people and the places that are negatively impacted by these large-scale projects? Our guest today considers such projects to be a form of intersectional infrastructure violence. In Laos, for example, these big infrastructure projects come at huge environmental and social costs. To discuss these issues and the relationship between infrastructure, connectivity and displacement, we are joined by Dr Kieran Sims, a lecturer in development studies at James Cook University. He researches regional connectivity and South-South cooperation within mainland Southeast Asia, with a focus on ethical development. His recent work examines the intersectional violence of large-scale infrastructure, political oppression and development geopolitics. Kieran is the author of numerous academic and media publications and lead editor of a forthcoming Rutledge Handbook of Global Development. He's also a good friend of SEACS and gave the Laos update at our 2020 Politics in Action event. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kieran. Thank you very much for having me, Natalie. Kieran, we don't often get to discuss Laos on the SEACS Stories podcast. Can you introduce us to the country itself? Yeah, sure. Laos is a really beautiful country. It's situated at the centre of mainland Southeast Asia. So it's a landlocked country that has borders with Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar and southern China. Parts of the country are highly mountainous and other parts are lowland wet rice farming areas. And a large stretch of the Mekong River flows through Laos as well. It's also a country that has really rich ethnic diversity It's got UNESCO World Heritage Sites. It's one of the most heavily bombed countries in the world and it continues to experience legacies of war as a result of that through unexploded ordnance. And it's a country that's undergoing really rapid change. With my work sitting in the field of development studies, two important features of Laos that I pay attention to is that it's the United Nations least developed country, United Nations categorised least developed country, so one of only four least developed countries within Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, it's also one of the most politically oppressive countries in the world. Can you situate Laos within global development efforts? The obvious one here, which I mentioned in my introduction, is the Belt and Road Initiative. So is that the only development initiative in Laos? What else is happening in this sector? Yeah, absolutely. So as I suspect many of your listeners are already aware, the Belt and Road Initiative is a really world-transforming connectivity agenda, which seeks to put China at the centre of global political, economic and even cultural geographies. Within Southeast Asia, the BRI is constituted by maritime routes, which cross the South China and the Andaman Sea and by two overland economic corridors. The one of significance or most significance for Laos is the Indochina Peninsula Economic Corridor. Beyond the BRI, Laos' other major donors include Japan, 
Korea, Germany, Australia, and strong relationships with Vietnam and Thailand as well. So if you look at Laos' national development priorities, one of its key priorities is to graduate from least developed country status. Originally, the ambition was 2020, and that's now been pushed back. And the Lao government has two core priorities through which a lot of its development is pursued. One is to become the battery of Southeast Asia, and it seeks to do that through hydropower exports. And the other one is to shift from being landlocked to landlinked. And that's been a really key point of interest for me. That's where a lot of the transnational infrastructure investment that's taking place sits within that priority. Yeah, this idea of transitioning from landlocked to landlinked is really interesting. Who are the main players involved in in this initiative? So the Asian Development Bank has been really important. Back in 1992, it set up the Greater Mekong sub-region. Other donors to Laos like Japan and South Korea have also played an important role in this transnational connectivity efforts. So too has Australia funding a number of friendship bridges over the years. And most recently, China's become a really critically important player. So Laos' national development ambitions to be land-linked align very well with China's Belt and Road initiatives for connectivity in mainland Southeast Asia. And so the BRI now sits alongside of uh, or perhaps on top of existing connectivity agendas like the Greater Mekong sub-region, which still continue to be pursued in Laos as well. And do you have a sense of whether Laos' national strategic priorities were designed to align with the Belt and Road Initiative or is it just a coincidence? It's not a coincidence. Rather, it's more a case of connectivity being a really core part of what Southeast Asian countries, as Laos as one of these countries, see as fundamental to development. So Laos had that ambition for a long time. As I mentioned, it's a landlocked country. And that being landlocked is seen as a major inhibitor of development. It's considered an inhibitor to trade, uh, international trade in particular, of course. So it's long been an ambition to connect the country to its neighbouring countries. And I mean, that goes right back to the colonial period. In fact, the French colonial period was also about connecting Indochina into southern China and connecting Laos to Vietnam and so on. So the strong alignment there is something that has a long history. Now, you've mentioned two different types of large infrastructure developments in Laos, if I can categorise them in terms of one being connectivity and the other being this idea of Laos becoming the battery of Southeast Asia with hydropower development. Does your research focus more on the connectivity infrastructure developments or are you also looking at the hydropower developments? So I've predominantly looked at the transport infrastructures. I have an interest in China's growing presence in Laos as well, and China's a major investor in hydropower. So I'm interested in hydropower as well. But in terms of my field work and working with displaced communities, that's been predominantly around transport infrastructures and associated infrastructures along the economic corridors that the transport connectivity produces. So also doing some research within special economic zones in the north of the country and urban development projects in Vientiane, which I suggest are tied to trying to make the city into a more central node within a a more connected region. I want to turn now, you just mentioned displaced 
peoples. And one of your arguments is that large-scale infrastructure projects frequently increase the exposure of disadvantaged communities to intersectional forms of violence. Can you explain to us what you mean by intersectional here and the different forms of violence that are implicated? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been doing research field work in Laos for more than a decade. And over the years, I've seen disadvantaged and vulnerable communities experience different forms of harm from large-scale infrastructure projects and from other development projects. One of the challenges I guess we have as researchers is how best to make sense of what's taking place through these different forms of harm. How do we conceptualise the different forms of disadvantage and the different types of disadvantage that we see these communities experiencing? So looking at violence has been a new and really fascinating direction for me and then bringing in intersectionality into that analysis has been really helpful. So intersectionality is a concept that's been most prominently advanced through critical feminist literature. And in that context, it looks more at things like how gender inequalities intersect with inequities of class, ethnicity, place, or other determinants of well-being and of people's social positioning. So what I've sought to do in my latest research is to sort of borrow this concept and then apply it to my own empirical research around large-scale infrastructures and look at how different forms of violence come together and intersect in regards to the lived experiences of proximate communities. Kieran, you said you've been working in Laos for 10 years doing field work there. Can you tell us a little bit about the communities that you're working with and the projects that you've been focusing on? So I've been working predominantly in urban contexts and along the corridors of large-scale transnational infrastructures. And the three main fieldwork sites that I've been looking at have been in Vientiane, in the capital of Laos, and some urban development projects there. In the north of the country, in the special economic zones, and particularly the casino development projects that have taken place up there. And then in Luang Prabang, in the heritage city, the largest city in the north of Laos. And in that context, particularly looking at the village of Ban Long Lat, which sits behind the Luang Prabang Provincial Airport. It's that field site in Luang Prabang that I've looked at most closely. And the reason that I've looked at that site most closely is because the communities there have, have experienced over the past 15 years three rounds of displacement and dispossession, all tied in different ways to infrastructure projects. So in 2004, the community were forcibly displaced from the rural areas of Luang Prabang to the city under national resettlement programs to bring remote communities and particularly ethnic minority communities into the city's core. So that displacement and resettlement was legitimised through bringing communities closer to infrastructures and other government services. Then in 2010, that community was forcibly displaced for a second time to make way for the upgrade and expansion of Luang Prabang's provincial airport, which was seen as, as a means to bring greater tourism flows and other economic flows into Laos. Then in 2016, some of the residents of the twice resettled community discovered that they would yet again lose land and other assets in order for the expansion of the Pan-Asia Railway project, uh, which is a BRI flagship project. So yet again, 
for a third time within 15 years in the name of infrastructure and in the name of development, this community has been forcibly displaced, seen the loss of land, housing and other assets. I imagine that keeping track of research informants is very difficult in those circumstances. How do you how do you manage to keep track of these constant displacements? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question and of course it's been especially challenging over the last year or two with COVID-19 and the inability to travel back to Laos. But one of the things that I've found really important in trying to understand the lived experiences of displacement for these residents is the use of lengthy fieldwork periods. So I was able to spend almost a year in Laos for my PhD and and then have visited a number of times in the years since, but also the use of, of life narratives. So the forced displacement in 2004 occurred a number of years before I'd met any residents from the community. So sitting with people and talking about their life narratives and their and and their lived experiences of displacement over time has been really important and also really important to reveal some of those slower forms of violence which continue to have an impact on people's lives well beyond when the physical remnants of a resettled community cease to exist I feel like I'm a thousand years old because I first went to Laos I first went there in 1997 we visited Vientiane and Luang Prabang. So it's really startling to think of those communities in Luang Prabang who would have been there, I guess, in 1997, having experienced such repeated displacements. I mean, the upheaval is just astonishing. The invisibility of it all too is something that I find quite amazing. So what first started me working with this community was I knew the displacement had taken place and then I went to the resettlement site and I didn't arrive till almost... 12 months after they'd been first displaced and there was still a large number of residents living in these tents that had been provided by the company that was paying for and undertaking the airport upgrade and expansion. So a year later and they still didn't have access to any piped water, they still didn't have access to electricity, they couldn't leave their homes because they were worried about theft if they went off to work somewhere far away. Some of them were you know, migrant labourers and things. And once I knew they were there, then I, you know, I deliberately flew back into the city to see if you could see them from the plane. And you could if you were there looking. But something that struck me as just really you know, fascinating was that the tourist gaze is on the UNESCO Heritage City. So they're in plain sight, but they're also invisible. Nobody noticed them. And then they're made more invisible, of course, by being unable to speak at all about this displacement and how it's negatively affected them because they're afraid of punishment, basically, by the government if they do speak up. And there was there was a Korean golf course put in. And in that case, residents were given compensation for the displacement in envelopes that they had to sign and accept before they opened the envelope to see how much resettlement funding they'd been given. And then some of the residents that basically refused to relocate were in prison for three years. So there's some pretty serious background to these people being afraid to speak up about these displacements and resettlements. And that everybody in the resettlement site was aware of what had happened with the Korean golf course. And there was one resident in the resettlement site that I was looking at who did 
try and hold out and say he wasn't moving until he got a better compensation payment. He was someone who'd travelled internationally, so he'd sort of had experience beyond Laos. And ultimately, the police just turned up at his property and said, leave today or come with us, that's your choice. We recently did a podcast here at SEAC Stories with Professor Susan Park, who talked about the accountability mechanisms within multilateral development banks. Are you aware of the people that you work with tapping into such accountability mechanisms as a form of redress or as a form of voicing their concerns and complaints? Yeah, it's another really important question. I'm not aware of that. I think the context of Laos makes that quite difficult. So I previously mentioned that Laos is one of the most politically oppressive countries in Southeast Asia and indeed in the world. And so there's a lot of fear for displaced residents in raising any sort of opposition to their resettlement beyond more localised attempts at negotiation with uh, local members of government or other people of influence around the project. And again, I've had a number of experiences in speaking with displaced residents where they've cited to me examples of others within Laos who have experienced enforced displacements or arbitrary detention, imprisonments for resisting or contesting these kind of displacements. So any sort of public efforts in opposing these projects is pretty uncommon in Laos. You describe your research as focused on ethical development. What does or could this look like in a Laos context? Does it involve using intersectional approaches or are there different things that we need to be thinking about? One of the things that I'm trying to explore through this idea of intersectional violence in regards to infrastructure is whether that does provide possibilities for more equitable development. Some of the work that was influential in my thinking here is by the feminist philosopher Patricia Hill Collins, and she talks about in her work on intersectionality that violence or solutions to violence are unlikely if violence is imagined through monocategorical lenses. So the idea here is that if we can come to a more comprehensive and perhaps complex understanding of what different forms of violence are at play and how they intersect, then we might see potentially new opportunities for not just better understanding, but also for better confronting violence. And so I think this is really an interesting next direction for me to try and explore in this research in the use of this concept of intersectional violence. How might this attentiveness to different intersecting forms of violence offer insights for pursuing infrastructure projects in more ethical and more equitable ways? I'm interested in the implications of your research and particularly the approaches that you're using for other Southeast Asian countries and indeed other countries undergoing rapid infrastructure development. Any thoughts? I think the infrastructural turn, if perhaps we can call it that, or or perhaps a return to infrastructure, is something that we're seeing all across Southeast Asia. We're seeing a priority for connectivity, regional integration, and infrastructure investment within all ASEAN blueprints, within the national development plans of all ASEAN countries, within the statements and the investment flows of key donors to the region, within the new and existing multilateral development banks, we're seeing this enormous push for connectivity through infrastructure investment. Some 
Development scholars are talking about this as a, a retro-liberal turn within global aid regimes, and I think there's a very strong case for this retro-liberal turn. It's my sense that trying to better understand the manifold effects of infrastructure and particularly the violent effects of infrastructure and how different forms of violence intersect around infrastructures is an important challenge for all countries within Southeast Asia and indeed beyond the region. Mm, That is so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and for helping us shift that tourist gaze and also the researchers' gaze to these really important issues that you're working on, Kieran. Best of luck with your future research. Thank you very much for having me, Natalie. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.